My friends, today is the day. The moment is now. The change begins. Why? Because you are here on the 18 Summers Live Your Passion podcast where we encourage you to live your passion. You get one chance, one shot at this life. And you can either be the person that says, I wish I had, or you can be the person that says, I am so glad I did. So join us as we dive in, we figure it out, we walk this walk together so that we can live our passion. Today's show is brought to you by TrueGarden.com. True Garden in Mesa, Arizona is your national supplier of seedlings and other materials and supplies for your tower garden or tower farm systems. You cannot go wrong choosing TrueGarden.com. Uh, True Garden is a 5,000 square foot state-of-the-art greenhouse located in Mesa, Arizona. It is a premier supplier of all things tower farm and tower garden related. And you can go to their website at TrueGarden.com, see all of their offerings, their seedlings that they ship nationwide, uh, you know, you name it, the components you need for your tower garden. If you're not familiar with tower garden, uh, you are missing out on some of the best technology around. Let's just say that you live in North Dakota and right now you're covered in six feet of snow. Well, if you had a tower farm or a tower garden in your living room or in your kitchen with some nice grow lights on it, you could have fresh lettuce, kale, spinach, maybe strawberries, melons, tomatoes, basil, anything you want really to grow on it. There's a hundred varieties or more of things you can grow on these towers. And it could be yours if it was in your home right now. So you need to go to their website, truegarden.com, and check them out. And if, you, uh, if you've considered commercial farming, it is not a bad option for that either. There are plenty of commercial farms popping up around the country, especially in urban settings, and this is a great way to do it. These towers and systems use 90% less water and 90% less land. So to give you an idea, a 5,000 square foot greenhouse like True Garden produces 50,000 square foot worth of produce. True Garden itself can grow more than 20,000 individual plants in a month period and they can turn it over 13 times a year with no need for soil treatment as there is no soil to it. Check it out, truegarden.com. Welcome to the 18 Summers Live Your Passion podcast. My name is Hal Califf and I'm your host. And today we're joined with James Kennerly. Now, James is a world-renowned organist, and I'm not going to even try to go through his bio here on a little intro because it's just um, so much in, in, in 34 years of life. So, James, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Now, James, you've got a bit of an accent. Um, yeah. Sounds to me like you, maybe you were born across the pond. Is that, is that, am I right? I that? sure was. I was born across in the British pond, across the, the pond in, um, in England. Um, I came to the U.S. Uh, just over 12 years ago. Um, and I haven't quite lost my accent yet. And my, and my family's very happy about that. And so is my wife who's American. So <laughs> yeah, don't lose the accent. Cause we Americans think a lot more of the British. We always think you're more intelligent because you have an accent. I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's completely a myth, but, but if that's, that's what people do, that's good. Go with it. Like it's when we hear, <laughs> when we hear Australians with their accent, yeah. like, we always think they're tougher. Like there's just something yeah. about it, you know? So run with it. Why not? Absolutely. <laughs> my father was, uh, 
my father was from Lebanon. He had a very heavy accent. He passed away when he yeah. was uh, about 47. But man, all through his life, he had a very heavy accent. Not as heavy as like some of my uncles who came here later in life, but right. it was, yeah, it was, no, it was very heavy. So run with it. Keep it, man. That's part of your, <laughs> that's part of your heritage. So, all right, you are a world-renowned organist. And I've listened to some of your music, I, I, which I happen to love. Like, uh, I love classical music. Mm-hmm. I love uh, instrumental. Um, and I was going through and I was listening. And I, I think the one that impressed me the most, and probably because I watched the video of it, yeah, um, was the uh, was it the uh, improvised plain song? I'm looking at it right now. Triptych, T R I P T Y C. Okay, the fugue finale. I mean, it was. It's yeah. It's a very oh, awesome. long. Yeah, and it is a long title. Yeah, that was that's something I'm. So it's improvised. I literally made it up. Um, it's based on a melody. Uh, uh, East, it was around Easter time, so I took the melody and I kind of made up a symphony based on that. But nothing was written down. Um, wow. And it was pretty cool. I haven't actually listened to it in a little while, but I will do. I was. It was very impressive. Uh, I and and from somebody who's like not really musical, that was. I, I was just blown away by it. Um, before we start talking about, it, I do want to get a background on you, and I want people to understand where you're coming from because it, it's going to be it's going to be really interesting. I think for them, as it was for me, as I learned more about um, what you do now. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think the context of of where you came from and how long you've been doing it really matters. So, so yep. tell us, you're an organist. What, what got you into this? Tell us about your your childhood, where you grew up, what it was like, what did you do? Yep. How did you get into this? That's a great question, and it's something I often ask myself um, when I'm practicing. You know, way into the early hours. Why did I do this? Why didn't I just get a normal job in an office that you know goes from nine to five, Monday to Friday, which um, I personally could could realized from a young age, I probably could never deal with. Um, so when I was about eight, seven, eight years old, I probably heard my first pipe organ live in the local cathedral um, in Essex, which is about 45 minutes north, about an hour north of London um, in the UK. And I heard this instrument and I saw it. You talked about the video. For me, the, the connection between the audio and the visual on the pipe organ is is it's absolute tantamount to what attracted me to the instrument. So I heard this instrument, and then when I was about two or three years older than that, I joined the cathedral choir. So this is an amazing choir of traditional men and boys, which we still have a, a number of those in, in the UK. Um, and we would rehearse and perform every day in the morning and then in the evening. And all of the singing we did was accompanied by the pipe organ. So I got more, you know, a daily exposure to this instrument. I, I was just absolutely transfixed by the first moment that I heard these sounds and I would also turn around the keyboards were behind where I would where we would stand as singers um, and I think the choir director was very angry with me on a daily basis because I'd always have my back turned to him um, looking at this the pipe organ and seeing all of the the keys moving and the the pedals and, and the stops moving I thought that was just awesome so for me it was you know around eight nine ten years old hearing the the sound of the pipe organ and seeing it. And those two things, really, I think by that point, I said, I want to be doing this. This is what I want to be carrying forward for the rest of my life. So I I think I was about hmm, 14 when I had my first pipe organ lesson. And my teacher said, you know, I wanted to learn much earlier than that. He said, no, you have to get to a certain level on the piano before you play the pipe organ. The organ is very similar to the piano. You have keyboards, you play with your hands, uh, but the piano, you just have one. The organ, you have two, three, four, five, sometimes six. Um, And then you have a bunch of keys you play with your feet. 
And that's the most unique thing of the pipe organ. So you have a keyboard like in the, um, I forget the movie, maybe it's big with FAO Schwartz where he's playing the keyboard with his feet in the toy store. And, and so you have to be able to use your hands and the feet at once. Um, so he said, once you're old enough and tall enough, and you've got enough skill on the piano, then I'll teach you the organ. So I had my first organ lesson, I about 14, and I, the best thing I could compare it to was going to a theme park, which up until that point in my life was the coolest thing I'd ever done. And I said to him, this was even better than going to Alton Towers, that's the name of the, the theme park in England at that point, because I thought it, it, it was, it was, you know, any roller coaster, forget it, this this experience was it. Um, and and I, and that really st- has stuck with me. There is not a moment where I don't sit down at, at an instrument, a pipe organ or a piano, um, or making any instrument and think this is better than any theme park, anything that I'd ever done and really anything I've done up to now. Um, so that's the, the sort of the passion that's kept me going. And it's, and it's remained the same from the very, very get go. Wow. And it's interesting because when you, when you look at some of these organs, there's one here in, uh, in Arizona, uh, yep. where we're at right now in Mesa at a pizza restaurant. And I don't know if, yeah. you've, ever, I don't know if you've ever heard of this one. Yeah. Um, that pizza parlor organs. Yeah. It's, this one is huge. Uh, the person I guess that owns it personally paid, I think when they moved their locations, it cost him, it was a fortune to move this thing. Yep. I mean, it's, it's yep. massive. And you know, the, the organ and the organist rise out of the floor right. and like, it's the <laughs> coolest thing you've ever seen. And it's silly. Like when you think of it, oh, it's like a pizza place, but it's an attraction to people all over the country um, yep. because it really is kind of a one of a kind thing out here as far as that yep. goes. And, but it's not, and, and you, you mentioned playing a piano. What mm. amazes me is like watching you play uh, the organ you were playing in the video, the one I referenced earlier. Yeah. It was like watching someone dance, play mm-hmm. four pianos, Yep. And then work a, an old telephone switchboard all at the same time. Like <laughs> it was the most confusing thing I've ever seen. I, I mean, I've done some confusing things and I've seen some confusing, confusing yeah. things, but that was just beyond belief. Cause literally you're playing the piano. It's like, you're playing the piano with your feet mm-hmm. and then you're, you know, using a, a pedal back and forth. Like you're driving a car Yep, exactly. You're playing multiple keyboards with your hands and at the same time, you've got all these buttons, switches, and knobs. Like, it yep. is absolutely confusing. <laughs> it um, is. But you played it with such, like, finesse and grace. I was like, well, how do you how do you get to that? Like, I've seen drummers, right? Like, the drummer yep. from Def Leppard, he's got one arm, and he can mm-hmm. rock out better than somebody who, you know, if they were born with four arms. Yep. But how do you manage to keep track of that? Is it just time and, and practice or is it really like, do you think it's more of a, an internal gift that you really just have to understand? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I was very young when I first came across the instrument. And when you're young, you don't think about stuff like that. You don't have a, a frame of reference to say, oh, this is difficult and this is easy. And I remember practicing for hours and hours and hours. And I think this, you know, contributed a lot to my character that when I was, you know, 14, 15, 16, I would do two, three, four hours of practice. And, you know, my, my goal was, well, I've got to get this, you know, this has got to be good enough. I've got to be able to perform this piece for my teacher. And I really want to do this. And that gave me the, the impetus to keep practicing. But I think if I were to start that, 
you know, in my 20s or 30s, I'd be like, you know what, man, this is way too complicated. Um, I'll just stick with the piano or the guitar or something. Not that they are easy at all, but you're right. In terms of the the visual coordination and the physical, the physicality of playing the pipe organ, it's a workout. And, you know, there are special shoes you have to wear to play the organ and you have to wear, you don't have to, but a lot of my colleagues wear special clothes because they get so hot when you're performing on this. And you're right, it's it's an acrobatic feet as well as a musical one yeah and not to discount any other instrument i can't play a guitar i i <laughs> played drums in uh, junior high and high school and i could awesome i can do some simplistic stuff but i you know i couldn't rock out a concert um, right so i'm not to discount any of that because it's all above my pay grade but it's still it's impressive because it's it's it literally looked like you were playing you know multiple instruments at once it kind of reminds you like yeah. the old uh the old Italian circus performers or the street performers who have like, yeah. the, you know, the symbols and the things on their back exactly. and the accordion and like the whole works. You're just like, how do you, how do you yeah. know what you're doing? You know? So it's very impressive. I can't type a letter without looking at my keys. So how you play right. the piano with your feet, I don't get, but yeah, no, that's, it's very impressive. That's so, funny. And I must also say that I never learned to touch type. So even though I can do all of this stuff with playing the organ, I still look just like you do at my fingers when I type. And we're, we're equals on one level then. Yeah, that's great. Someday, someday <laughs> when I have my you know, midlife crisis, I am going to learn to touch type and it'll be the the making of me or the undoing of me. That's all. I have a skill that um, is no longer useful, but I used to have a flip phone and I could mm-hmm. text really fast, but we had to do like five, 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 six, six, two, one, two. It's like, of course. you know, the space is zero. Fantastic. And, yeah. I yeah. got really good at that. Um, That's a shame. And then it just, and it disappeared. Yeah. Then they came out with QWERTY <laughs> keywords. Who did that? Um, so let's talk about your upbringing. Cause I, I'm seeing sure. here, you were educated at the Harrow school, Harrow school. Yep. Harrow school. Harrow school. Okay. Yeah. So tell us about that. Like, I mean, you didn't, cause see, I think in the U S we don't boarding schools, just they're, they're existing over here, but not on the same yep. level. And, and that as I think, uh, in Europe, especially in the, in the U S it's, it's, I think it's a very uncommon thing to meet somebody who goes to a boarding school or who went to a yeah. boarding school. So tell us about yeah. that. So I, I went there when I was 16, 15, 16. Um, so it's a little bit later than, than, you know, if you think of Tom Stoppard, the, the novel, you hear about these miserable kids having, um, you know, cold meals and freezing cold showers from the age of seven and their parents have abandoned them. Did you get That's sent there because you were in trouble? Is that what it was? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was such a badly behaved boy. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, a lot of people went to school, especially my parents' generation, under those conditions. And so boarding school gets a really bad rap. But when I went, it was because that particular school had a really strong tradition in music and especially in organs. They had two pipe organs, two massive, amazing pipe organs in the school. Um, and so I, I auditioned for a music scholarship there and, and that then allowed me to essentially do like a pre-college level degree. So I was practicing, performing on the organ every day, um, you know, beginning, middle and end. And so they gave me, you know, special keys to get into the chapel as sort of a medieval style, you know, massive key you'd see in Harry Potter or something. And I would just wander around and, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten at night and open up the chapel and go in and practice. Um, so that enabled me to keep this music um, passion that I had going. And by that point, I knew I wanted to do this professionally. And and I had a you know pretty clear trajectory of what I wanted to do, you know, in terms of going to university and further study. So that was a really good decision for me. Um, it also was a really good school academically. I was very interested in in academics and always very sort of driven as a kid. 
And so it, it just worked out really well. It also isn't too far from where my parents lived. So, you know, my mom would come up every weekend or every other weekend. Um, and, and I th- think the terrible reality with boarding schools and probably college as well is the, the biggest fear is with the parents that they don't want their kids to go away. Um, the kids themselves, you know, 90% of the people I was at school with, they were just loving it because they're hanging out with their friends or if they're not their friends when they get there, they, they're best friends when they leave. And it's like an extended family. And, and then you get to see your parents and it's all good because they don't have to discipline you. They don't have to make you do your homework. And so you could, it was really the, an amazing thing for me. I was incredibly fortunate to, that that all sort of lined up and, and in a way that, you know, that sets the tone of my, you know, the, the study and career eventually that I had. So yeah, really grateful for it. It's actually very different than what we think of in the in you know in the terms of in, of going. I mean, I think even us in the U.S. because we hear boarding school, yeah. typically here like you hear it referred to, and really seldomly now, which would be you know the the most common boarding school type you hear about now is like military mm-hmm. school. I'm gonna send you off right. to military. You can't get your stuff together. You're going off to military school. Yep, exactly. So. <laughs> I was a little concerned when I read that in your bio. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I, I, I had a feeling it was probably a good thing. But when you when you finished there, and mm. you, you said you came to the U.S. when you were how old? I was, oh my goodness, 22. Yeah. Um, so I was working at, after, the, after school, boarding school, I went to Cambridge University, and I studied um, for an undergraduate degree there in, in music, but specializing in um, pipe organ and choral music and and choir directing. Um, and so I was an organ scholar at Cambridge university. And then I went to be um, one of the organists at St. Paul's cathedral in London. Um, the famous building survived the blitz and, uh, you know, the most extraordinary place to work. And every day I was there, I thought this is surreal. Um, you'd have to enter the building through the, the crypt that sort of went underneath the, the building you would walk through, you know, the hallowed halls with statues and gravestones and, and every time I would think, wow, you know, the coronations or the not the coronations, the memorial services and the funerals and the weddings and all of the people who have been there, it, that history just rushes through. Um, so making music in that space, which I did for the next um, year and a bit, was was just extraordinary. I worked with the, the choir there, which is world famous, fabulous group. Um, and while I was working there, someone came um, from a church in, in Connecticut, Greenwich, Connecticut, and essentially, you know, they observed me performing and then they came up and offered me a job. And the one of the problems with the thing that I do is that there aren't a lot of jobs, partly because it's it's so rare, um, so specialized. And, and it's not, you know, it, it was much more popular 50 or 100 years ago. Nowadays, it's it's much more on the on the edges of of society in many ways. So um it's, it was always nerve wracking to me saying, you know, 13, 14 years old, I'm going to do this as my job thinking, well, there aren't that many jobs. So I better make sure I, you know, I get a good job to, to make all this happen. So when this person came up and offered me a position, I thought this is, ins- you know, this is insane. I've got to take this. So I, you know, I consulted with my friends and colleagues and, and then thought, you know, I'll, I'll do this for a few years, a couple of years, get some experience in a different culture, different country, um, and so I did that. And while I was there, I then um, got a, another job in New York City. And that was sort of my dream job from a, a fairly young age. And I thought, this is just too good to be true. 
so so I stayed and that's that's why I'm here now. I never intended this to be something that that lasted more than a few years, sort of a, a gap year sabbatical type thing. Um, and I just had this sort of leap, literally, quite literally a leap of faith. I remember thinking, you know, if I, you know, go to the US, I might lose everything I built up in the UK and in Europe. And, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do it. And people have done much more daring things in the past. And, and so that sort of forms a lot of my character as well, thinking, right, I'm really in it. I'm in it for the arts and I'm in it for the music. And, and so I'll make a go of it. Nice. So that's how I ended up here. <clears throat> and you just to just to I don't want to gloss over your time at St. Paul's Cathedral, but you've played yeah. for you've played for the Royal Family. Yep. You've played for how many times have you played for the Royal Family? Oh my goodness. Um well we would do about ten big big um services there. A lot of times they would be televised and so I probably performed in six or seven or eight of those. Um and then there would be various smaller events that the members of the royal family would come to. And, and that's pretty cool. Even if you're, you know, when you're playing the organ in that place, you're just one, you know, little pawn on the great chessboard of, of society. But, but you're but the largest you're making, pawn. <laughs> yeah, you're making a, you're making, you're definitely the loudest because you are making noise. And I remember one time playing music before the service began when a lot of the, um, the guests were coming in um, and you know, seeing in the TV monitor because the organ was miles away from where the people were, you know, seeing Prince Charles, I think, come in, I thought he's he's listening to my music. He's he's marching to my, you know, the music that I'm playing. That's really cool. So even if he has no idea who I am and has no interest in meeting me, that's that's pretty exciting. So it just brings, you know, brings it all back and think, oh, yeah, this is this is good. So I had a lot of extraordinary times there. Um, really fantastic. Now, did you ever get to meet any of the royal family? Have you ever? ever... I did, yeah, I did. I, I've met a, a lot of the members through um, my time at St. Paul's and also at, at Cambridge University because the um, the um, Duch of uh, the Duchess of of Cambridge and the Duke, which is now um, William and Harry, um, their new titles were associated with the university. And um, Prince Philip, the Queen's husband, was the Chancellor, sort of the the honorary head of the university. So I'd met him a couple of times and then, you know, various other people along the way. And, and, you know, those things are always two second experiences, but you never forget them. Nice. And it's, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Now in, um, coming like to more like the last few years in that you made your, uh, solo debut, uh, your Carnegie hall solo debut. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us, tell us about that. Like Carnegie hall here is obviously a big thing. So tell us, tell yep. us about that. Yeah. That was a big surprise for me because because I, I hadn't necessarily planned it to happen that way. And I remember a, about four or no, more like six months before this concert took place. I think it was in November, um, maybe early December. And they, you know, someone sent me an email out of the blue and said, "We saw your videos on YouTube. We want you to be the soloist for our uh, for the organ concerto that we're performing with our orchestra." And it's the Sejong Soloist. They're a fantastic New York-based um, orchestra. And I thought, I, first of all, you, you know, always I think this is a joke because <laughs> <laughs> who's like, hey, I saw you on the internet. You're great. You want to perform at one of the most famous concert halls in the world ever. Um, but, you know, I, I'd heard of the group and I recognized the names and I thought, you know, this is legit. So I wrote back and said, sure. Um, and they said, great, you know, tell us what, you know, when you want to practice and various other details. 
and it and it happened and it was absolutely extraordinary and i played a couple of other concerts in carnegie and, and mostly on the organ and but not as a soloist as an more as an accompanist so so i you know i got that chill out of my system but when you sit down on that stage and do a, a solo performance it's it's really quite something as they say you know the 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 way to get to carnegie hall practice carnegie hall is to practice and and it's true you have to practice you also have to perform and have a lot of experience but um it was quite extraordinary hmm. unforgettable it's it's kind of like one of the few maybe not on the east coast because we do have a lot of like uh, older historic buildings but I mean, mm-hmm. Carnegie Hall, we're talking a building that's, you know, 130 years old, right. you know, built by Andrew Carnegie and that. So, I mean, it's mm-hmm. not it's not like coming out to Arizona and playing somewhere where the building was built 40 years ago. Like, this is a, right. a very historic building. Again, another one with a lot of historicity to it. It's mm-hmm. uh, And it's a prestigious place, too. It's it's not just, yeah. um, you know, it's not just the uh, the corner theater, you know, the, or the right. theater in the right. round. It's, this is a, yeah, it's a big, it's a big thing. So... Um, now with what you do now, cause you're, you're working for, um, you were voted to be the 11th municipal organist of the city of mm-hmm. Portland yep. by the search committee, which I don't even know what that means. Explain that. Cause first of all, that's very confusing to me. Is that a, is right. that like, it's an elected position in, in, in a, from a body of like a committee that's looking for like, what is this job? I've yeah, never heard of it, this. It's, it's bizarre. Um, and, and like a lot of these things, it would, you know, 50, 100 years ago, this would have been much more common. So every city, every town in the Western Hemisphere, essentially, had, a, you know, a town hall, a city hall. Um, and many of the bigger towns and cities had pipe organs built, you know, as the centerpiece of the, the hall. So on the weekends, the, you know, the organ would be played. And that was the, you know, before the PlayStation, before Netflix, before the Internet, before cinemas. And before the radio, and so this became a, a, you know, the entertainment of choice for millions of people around the world. And in addition to having the pipe organs in the buildings, you had an organist. So if you work for the city, you were the civic organist, the municipal organist. Um, and that's where in Portland, Portland is just one of two uh, cities in the U.S. that still has this tradition of the the space, the pipe organ and the pipe organist to kind of go with it, that trio of stuff. The other is in San Diego. Um, although San Diego's instrument is actually outside. Um, it's outside in the park and Portland's is inside because the weather is freezing cold for most of the year. Cause you're not California. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so we're the only one with a pipe organ that's in, in a building. Um, there used to be many, many more of these. And just over the years, the interest declined. And then they were very expensive. The instruments were expensive to maintain. Um, the organists were less expensive to maintain. But, you know, clearly cities had to make budget cuts. And they said, right, we'll get rid of the organist. We'll get rid of the organ. We'll close the hall. Or we'll turn it into something else. And and so that's where this came from. The organist would perform the the pop music essentially of the day, the music people wanted to hear. And often the orchestras were not particularly good. Even professional orchestras were very rare, especially in the U.S., but also in the U.K. So the idea at the turn of the 20th century of hearing this music was was quite a rare one. And so you would hear it played by a pipe organist who would transcribe the music. You take all the instrumental music, the clarinets, the oboes, the violins, the trumpets, the percussion – 
and play all of that as we were talking earlier with the the keyboards and the stops and the feet and the hands. Um, and that's why we're always jumping over the place. We're trying to be a symphony orchestra with all of the different instrumentalists, but just with one person. So that's where it came from. Um, the, you know, the cinema was sort of our first major enemy, I guess, after the radio. Um, so even in the 1920s and the 19, the teens and the twenties, the pipe organ was the accompaniment for silent movies, because at that point they could make movies, but they couldn't link the sound together with the picture. So they would have, you know, silent movies. And we think of Phantom of the Opera and Nosferatu, all of the scary Gothic horror movies. But there are lots of fantastic comedy uh, movies that a lot of them are now available on YouTube. And and they're really, really good. So the organist would provide entertainment, the music, the soundtrack, kind of the John Williams of the, the teens and the 20s. Um, and then in the, the late 20s and 30s, the movie um, music came into being. They worked out a way of recording music and audio. So that kind of put an end to the, the pipe organ accompanying movies full time. And then, you know, the, the tragedies of the two world wars and the um, social and economic setbacks, you know, in the 50s and 60s led to a lot of these instruments just being abandoned. So it's, it's a long winded way of saying that it's a miracle that I'm able to be the 11th municipal organist in, in Portland. It's a miracle they have the instrument, that they have the, the tradition of the pipe organist, and that they have the space to, to house all of that. So, so how, my job is to – sorry. No, you're good. I was, I was going to ask, how many times a year do you, do you perform? Do you work I mean, within that building? And, and, um... So I do things every month of the year, um, at, least, at least once um, – in you know Christmas time we and holiday times we do a lot more um, performances and in the summer we have a lot because tourism is a big deal in Portland um, and I, we have a big event coming up in February and then another big event in March so there's an awful lot happening and and it's partly in a, re, a reaction to the fact that Portland is becoming a, a super trendy hip tourist destination and it used to be a, a you know a, a fantastic port city. And now I think the, the tourism is, is starting to almost eclipse that. Um, people, it's got amazing food. It's, it's got stunning um, mountains and, and natural areas surrounding it, not to mention the ocean. And so a lot of people come to Portland and they get a little bit of the city. It's not a big city. So it's got a wonderful small city feel. And then they can go out to the beach and to the mountains and go to an organ concert. So that's, that's sort of our, you know, our, our clientele, as it were. And that's not the only thing you do, though. I mean, you have right. that, and then you do more. <laughs> yeah, I, I, as I say, I'm I'm insane. Um, and and when I, it all comes back to when I first heard the pipe organ. It was it wasn't as a, a keyboard player or as a, an organ. It was as, as a singer. So I was singing in this amazing choir, and singing never left. You know, once you have a the instrument is part of you. And so I said to myself when I was about. 16, it must have been. I said, well, I've got a real problem. I went to a um, music teacher of mine and said, I've got a real problem because I really love the pipe organ. I love singing. I love directing instruments, you know, orchestras and choirs, conducting them. I love composing and writing music. I love teaching and outreach and working with others to, you know, increase appreciation of music and, and so on. I said, how am I going to be able to do all this stuff? He said, well, you can't. You're going to have to choose one thing. And being the slightly stubborn, determined person that I am, I said, I, okay, I'll take your advice. But 
in the back of my mind, I always thought there must be another way uh, to make all this happen. And so thank, you know, thank goodness I've been able to keep all of these things, the choral, the choir directing, the composing, the, um, the performing as a, as a church musician, as well as a concert musician. And, and I always said I wanted to do all these at the highest level I possibly could. And, and, and I've thankfully been able to, to maintain all of that. So it's, um, you know, reducing the numbers of hours of sleep. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's really important for the creative mind, unfortunately. Um, but having an understanding wife and family and friends that, you know, say, okay, you're traveling off again and now you're practicing tonight and I'm not going to see you for another two weeks. Um, and also living in, I, I live in New York city and, and commute to a bunch of, of other places and, and being able to be in the center of one of those travel hubs is, is really important. So I can jump on a plane and be in, you know, Portland or wherever I need to be in a few, a matter of hours. So that's the sort of the practical side, but it was this determination I had, like, I'm not going to let these things go. I want to do all of these things to, you know, the highest level that I can. So I've been very lucky in order to do that. Wow. So how often, how, how many nights uh, a year do you think you're away from home? Oh boy. Now it comes the day of reckoning. I'd say probably, probably two and a half months worth. So about eight to 10 weeks, not a huge amount. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, I'll, um, my wife and I will go up to Portland and I'll be there for a chunk of time and we'll be there for the month of August. So, so it's, it's, and my family last summer came and visited. So we, you know, you kill a bunch of birds with one stone, um, in terms of spending time, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of traveling and I, you know, I'm young and foolish at the moment. So I, I like that. I still find the idea of traveling on the airport or driving somewhere really exciting. Yeah. Um, there will be a time when when it's not so exciting and it just becomes tiring. But as I say, young and foolish. How long have you been married? Um, we have been married for two and a bit years now. I have to check that that's right because we got married. We had three weddings, which is insane. We had a, a, a civil ceremony in uh, City Hall in New York City. Um, and then because we knew we wanted to get married, but we also knew we wanted to have a, a summer wedding. And stupidly, I proposed in the, you know, in September or August or September, it's Labor Day weekend, so beginning of September. And we're like, we're not going to wait a year. So we wanted to get married and have the sort of the first ceremony. Then in the summer of the next year, we had our um, wedding in the Berkshire Mountains in Massachusetts. And that's sort of a big church wedding with with lots of guests and reception in this really cool barn. Um, and then because I have English family and we just couldn't fit them all in. And we had to have an English wedding. So our third wedding was at, at Jesus College, the University of Cambridge, where I was the organ scholar. So, yeah, we had we had it was the year of weddings. Wow. Summer of weddings. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a busy year of weddings. Yeah. So I always have to remember which. So I have three anniversaries, right. which I don't advise anyone to have. No. The City I, Hall I, one is the one you go with. Go with the City Hall. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's uh, that's what we did. Yeah, we well, we 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 had. Uh, two official ceremonies um mm -hmm. uh but yeah no we, we go with the first one for sure so nice <laughs> wow and so you know and obviously then you were already i mean you were already you know 90 percent of the way through most of your um performing and 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 the jobs and that that you when you guys got married so she knew what she was getting when she when she absolutely signed on the line absolutely that's what i keep keep reminding her <laughs> <laughs> 
This is no different than it was two and a half years right, ago. Right, exactly, exactly. That's, that's awesome. Well, but that's important. You know, when I grew yeah. up, I, I remember thinking, you know, I'm not going to be able to have a family. I'm not going to be able to have kids. This is going to be something that I completely devote myself to, kind of like a monk. Um, and I and I always wanted to have a family. I always wanted to to, to get married. And, and I, you know, like those musical things I said, I never wanted to give up. I was like, I'm determined to do all of these things and get married and have a family and, and stuff. So, um, so at the moment that's all going, going really nicely. Yeah, it's interesting because your, your story reminds me of, um, uh, because of the, the, the rarity of the positions and like you were talking about, like the rarity of the jobs for what you do, yeah. uh, it kind of reminds me of, um, have you ever heard of the master penman? Uh, what's his name? Jake, uh, Jake Weedman. Mm-hmm. So that rings a bell. He's uh he's this master penman. He's only I think there's only like I don't know. Um, I want to say one of eight or ten in the world today right. that are these right. you know certified master penmen who can. I don't even know how to describe what they do, but it kind of reminds me of that. It's that very rare talent that yeah. requires a lot of uh, practice and persistence and skill mm-hmm. and time. And yeah. again, it's one of those things where you think, well, it's, it's it's not a very common thing, but it's a very uh, demanding thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and you do have to have that right relationship to be able to go, you know, say, oh, I, I, you know, I need to go compose, I need to go do what I do, and to be able to get that time to to do that because I. I don't need that kind of time. Like I need quiet time when I'm ready to right. record. I need mm-hmm. a little bit of quiet time when I'm working on graphic design projects, but that's yep. not really like I'm building a logo. It's not, I'm not writing a, you know, uh, uh, I'm not composing music. It's a very different right. world. Yeah. You yeah. know, so my kids and my wife can go, Oh yeah, we'll go to the park for half an hour. That's what you get. I, I don't, I would assume it doesn't work that way for you. You don't get no. you know, to where it's like, well, listen for the next 30 minutes, I'm just going to go work. And then we'll go to lunch. It's like, right. I would imagine you have to kind of get into. You uh, do. How does that work for you? I mean, what kind of a, what kind of time do you have to dedicate to that? Yeah, well, it's it's a great question. And as you say, it's 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 a, it's as much of a challenge as um, as basically as anything else that, that I do in my life is being able to to set aside time for creative purposes, whether that be practicing an instrument, which is difficult in itself because, you know, I, I have a piano in my apartment. So if I want to practice the keyboard stuff, that's easy. I just go sit down at the piano. Um, unless, you know, my wife's sleeping next door, um, or there are, you know, we have people for dinner or whatever. So that's pretty easy. But if I want to practice the organ, I have to go into a place that has an organ, the city hall in, in, in Portland, where the Kochmar organ is, there are performances there just about every night of the year hundreds of, of events that happen in there. So I can't just say, hey, I'm coming into practice for 12 hours. Um, and the church where I'm music director is a really busy space in New York City on the Upper West Side where they have loads of performances and rehearsals and maintenance and church services. So I, you know, I can't just say, right, I'm going to go and practice the organ now. Um, so being able to be flexible with all those constraints and, as you say, be in the right mind space to practice, which is not the easiest thing. I, I could say to myself, right, I'm going to go and practice, but I'm much more dictated by my general mood. And so I'll say, you know what, I'm just in the mood to practice. I'm in the mood to compose. Um, and much to my wife's confusion, she's like, why don't you just do that when you, you know, you know, it's nine o'clock now, can you make yourself in the mood? 
that's not how creativity works. In, and, and, and she's jesting with me. She knows that. Um, but, but it's a little bit like having writer's block or writer's flow. Um, when stuff is ready to flow and I want to compose or I want to practice, you just got to do it. When you got to do it, you got to do it. And so I, you know, I'll say, oh, it's the middle of the night, but I've got to go and practice. Or especially I compose late at night. Um, very rarely, if ever, compose in the morning. It's just not where my mind is. Um, so it's it's a big challenge. And, and being flexible is my number one consideration because I can't just turn up and say, right, everybody out. I'm here to practice. I have to, to be considerate, considerate of others and of my home life and of my personal sanity. Um, so get putting all of that stuff together. If I were to put it into a calendar hour by hour, my calendar would be a multicolored sort of rainbow of back to back stuff. So I, I tend to just, you know, do it. I have friends who time the amount of hours they spend or minutes to spend practicing a day. And I just don't do that. I'll say, look, I've got to, you know, learn this part of this piece or compose this type of music or prepare these scores to conduct and, I'll just do it until it's done. Um, but yeah, it's all about being flexible and, and preparing for whatever eventuality comes at you. Yeah. Well, I, mean, it, I don't know that you, I mean, trying to track that cause you've already got enough to keep track of. Like, do you have a personal assistant? How do you, how do you figure out where you need to be today? At yeah, I have, I have a, 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 um, a number of people that, that we sort of all work together to make sure that I don't miss too much stuff. Um, <laughs> But but the, one of the issues of working with with multiple organizations is that there is no one. I mean, I am, I suppose, the one person who who, you know, is at the top of the pyramid chain in terms of overseeing what is being scheduled where. And often I will, um, you know, December is a ridiculously busy month for church musicians, for anyone who does any kind of performing um, and so all of the, you know, the different groups that I work with and the, the freelance concert work that I do, it, you know, the peaks are all joined together. I wish I could say, right, this month I'm going to concentrate on this group. This month I'm going to do this group. But of course they all work together and often at the same time. So in December, if I looked, look at my travel schedule, it is just bonkers. And there are sort of, you know, get a flight at 4 a.m. here and then go and practice for three hours in Portland, then get a flight back and go and do this and then fly back to Portland and hope it doesn't snow. <laughs> Only missed one concert so far due to weather related travel. Um, and that was very, it was one, oh, I felt terrible, but I was like, they've canceled all the flights. There's no way I can get anywhere. So that's just how it is. But yeah, it's, it's bonkers, but you try and make it work and. Do the best you can. All right, you need a personal assistant. I'm just saying. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not the person for that job, but I'm sure there is somebody out there that would be. My yeah, if goodness. Insane enough. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned the uh, the Kachmar organ as we were talking. Let's talk about that because I'm fascinated by the history of this piece. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you being in Portland, which I'm really excited. We are coming to Maine this year. It was on our oh, it was cool. on our schedule for last year, and we got diverted in Pennsylvania, and and wound up spending the whole summer there and this year i was like that's mm -hmm. it we're going up the west coast we're heading across the north and we're making it to awesome. the new england states and i'm excited to come to portland uh, i've heard great things about portland yeah both from uh um well i mean really from everybody i've i've talked to that's from there it's just there's a lot of good stuff there um but i was reading the history of this Cotchmore, oregon and um 
tell us, I mean, tell us about it. Cause I don't, I mean, I, I don't know how many people listening to this are going to know the history of, of Portland and this Oregon and, um, and Herman Kochmar. So can you, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you know the history of this. Can you tell us? Yeah, can you I'm, share I'm, this? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty, pretty glued up on it. So the, the pipe organ was built in, it was started, um, construction in 1911. It was installed in 1912. And that was the golden age of pipe organs, what we call the symphonic organ in in the Western Hemisphere, mostly in America. America was leading the way in terms of the the tonal design, so the kinds of sounds that these things made. Um, also the mechanical design, because the pipe organ, and certainly in the 19th century, was by far the most complex machine that, that humankind had ever built. Um, before the Industrial Revolution, factories and things came in, the pi- pipe organs had thousands, tens of thousands of moving parts. They weighed, you know, tons and tons. They had pipes ranging from 32 feet in length to about an inch or less. I mean, these were massive things. These were, this was like, you know, a, a God created instrument. Um, and, and so that lasted really through the 19th and the 12th, 20th century. Um, when this instrument was built, it was built by the Austin organ company and they're sort of the Rolls Royce of pipe organ builders at that time. Um, and they built, you know, all the great symphonic organs. And, and when I say symphonic, this was meant to reproduce a symphony orchestra. So you think of, you know, your 70 or 80 musicians sitting on a concert hall stage. This is this thing was designed to re- recreate that. Um, so it was in, incredibly complex. All of the mechanisms, I mean, the, the way a pipe organ works is you have wind. It's kind of like a whistle. Um, so you have air that's pressurized and you push down a key and then that plays like a car horn or a, a recorder or something it plays in the pipes so every key you have you have a, have a different pipe and every different sound you have we call them stops you pull out you know a, a white sort of knob um, and that draws on the the rank of pipes so every stop you have you have to have a different set of pipes and the sounds are created by making different shapes of pipes they might be thicker or thinner if a pipe is longer, it makes a lower, deeper sound. If a pipe is shorter, it makes a squeaky, and you know you get the whole range of, of, of sounds through the different shapes and sizes of the pipes. If it's made out of wood, it tends to make more of a mellow, flutier sound. If it's made out of metal, it can make more of a pungent, stringier sound. So by varying the materials, that's how these organs became so massive. Um, so this organ was built by um, the the um, the Hartford-based organ company, Austin, as I talked about. Um, and it was commissioned by Cyrus Curtis. So he ran um, the Curtis Printing Publishing House. They were responsible for things like good housekeeping and lots and lots of other really major national um, publications. And in Philadelphia, for example, there's the Curtis Institute of Music, which was the same, same family that founded that. So Cyrus Curtis lived and worked in Portland, and like all good sort of um, upper middle class families, he had a music teacher who was this guy called Herman Kochmar, who emigrated from Germany um, to Portland. And he gave this instrument in memory of Herman Kochmar. That's why it's called the, the Kochmar organ, the Kochmar memorial organ. So this was after Kochmar had died, but he wanted to make it the biggest and the best. You know, this was America, the frontiers you know, building the, you know, the fall of the British empire, but the rise of this extraordinary industrial superpower. Um, and this, the pipe organs reflected that they were the 
the you know the private jets, uh, the 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 you know the tower blocks of the rich and famous. Um, but what's so cool is they were given for the people. So this wasn't an instrument in his house. This was given for the people of the city. Um, it was restored and rebuilt in 1927. So they, by that point, they had even more mechanical advances. They had more sound colors that they wanted to add. Um, so we have this time capsule of what the sound, you know, people listened to almost over a hundred years ago. Um, and since then it's never been changed. All we've done is cleaned it, updated it, changed the console. That's like the flight deck, the Concorde cockpit that, that you control the pipe organ from. Um, but all of the, the mechanism is as it was over a hundred years ago, which is absolutely awesome. I mean, think of com how computers have developed in, you know, 10 years, five years. Well, this technology was so good in the teens and twenties that it's basically still good now. I think of like, as opposed to the, um, the one that we, that I mentioned to you that's in, uh, in Arizona, the Wurlitzer. Yep. In the pizza parlor. Yep. 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 It came from the Denver theater. And, mm -hmm. and I think like, uh, I think it was built in the Denver theater in like 1926, yep. seven, something like that. Um, now I'm thinking like, okay, so I'm remembering what I read there. It was, uh, I think when they rebuilt it, when they moved it out of Denver to this, the, the first pizza place, I think they expanded it to like 23 rank. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I, and I'm, I'm, I, so I'm trying to get a visual of this. Like I've seen this one. Yeah. How many ranks are, are you talking so, about with the, so we have 104 stops. Okay. Um, so that's, that's. About just over seven thousand pipes. Oh my um, So seven thousand individual pipes. Again, this was before. Um, well, even nowadays, all pipe organs are built by hand. So every single one of those pipes, ranging as I say from thirty-two feet and several tons in weight to about an inch, just under an inch, they're all made by hand. Um, immaculate craftsmanship, and yeah. So when you look at pictures of pipe organs whether it's, you know, the Wurlitzer in a pizza parlor or the Kochmar organ, you're going to see a very nice sort of cabinet type face. Yeah. Um, we call it the facade. You have a bunch of pipes. We have like a hundred and something pipes in the facade. Only a, a handful of those actually make noise. The rest of them are just there to look pretty, um, to sort of, you know, cover it up a little bit like the, like the case of a piano, you know, you just see the glossy black wood, um, the enamel, um, all of the mechanism is inside. And that's the same with a pipe organ. So, so everything is behind that facade and it's incredible. We take people on tours of the, what's called the Winchester. So that's like the, like going under the hood of the car. Um, it's where all of the, the mechanism is and people are blown away because you know, it's, it's a car is an analogy I use a lot because you look at it and think, Oh, it looks really good. That's a beautiful looking car. Well, then don't say hood. You have to say bonnet. Oh, that's well, I see. I tr I'm trying my best with my, my American lexicon. <laughs> so you open up the bonnet and then people say, oh my goodness, you know, I mean, everyone drives cars, so they understand what's, you know, what's under there. But, but it's the same with this, with this instrument. And then people start getting, ex you know, interested in, in what that all means and how that functions and why we've kept the same technology for 110 years. And, and then you drive the thing. And then people are like blown away. So we have those sort of three stages. It's very visually compelling. It's impressive. It's, it's, it's enormous. And then you look inside and think, oh, you know, mechanics of this thing. This is so cool. And then you perform on it and people think the sound of it. This is like before 
7.1. This is before the Dolby, Dolby Theater surround system. This is before subwoofers. This is, you know, the original surround sound. We have a, a, about 1,500 pipes of the pipe organ in the ceiling. So that's about 100 feet above where the audience sits downstairs in the hall. Um, so we use that. It's called the echo division, the antiphonal division. And so people hear sound coming from somewhere else. And they're like, oh, so where are the speakers? And we're like, oh, no, no, there are no speakers here. Um, it's all acoustic sound. And it's it's impossible to describe it. I can do my best. And sometimes I get close. But, you you know, it's like describing chocolate if you're a chocolate lover. It's like, how do you describe the taste of chocolate? It's You can't do it. It's just amazing. Um, I'm a chocoholic, too. Um, so that's why I use that analogy yeah. with with the organ, but you, you just have to listen to it and in person. And then you're like, Oh, that's what it is. That's it. See, and you, you said something key there. You have to listen to it in person. Cause you can watch, like I've watched the videos and I did it with just my speakers and my computer. I was like, okay, wait a minute. I put on my headphones. I'm like, okay, yeah, but it still doesn't do it justice because you're right. picking up and you're picking up good audio from whatever recorder they might be using or whatever, mm -hmm. but it still doesn't do, you don't have the acoustics, you don't have the resonance, you don't have the, all those the the like you said like all the pipes up in the you know up in the ceiling that have that you know that 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 sound that it carries you don't get that yeah. when you're watching right. a video or listening in your headphones and it's it's very much the difference between um like I I'm not a big movie guy right I, I mm -hmm. to see a movie in a the theater to see a movie on TV I couldn't care less right but when it comes to music uh, I got to take my daughter a couple years ago to um. Phoenix Symphony Hall, and, mm -hmm. and we went to listen to a symphony play, and the difference. That was my first time ever sitting in a in a symphony hall. I'm very uncultured, um, but it was it was really a a new experience for me because I had always listened to classical. There are yeah. times when listen, there are times when I'm driving and I've got 1960s country on and people are yep. losing their dogs left and right. Um, you know, then the 70s came and their wives yep. left them and things like that. Or I'll listen yep. to, you know, some pop, not a lot. Um, you know, it just depends on who's in the car and what we're doing mm -hmm. and where we're going. But, you know, I drove to California and back twice over the Christmas holiday to take my, my yep. mom back and forth to California. And mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time listening to classical. And it was because I was in a rental car and it was a nice new rental car, very luxurious car, and had a yep. great sound system. And I was like, you know mm -hmm. what? I can really appreciate this music nice. in this setting. Yeah. And so that's what I, you know, that's what I did. And but being there in person, going to the Symphony Hall and listening was a very different experience. Mm -hmm. One that I have yet to 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 replicate or duplicate yeah. anywhere else. Yep. And uh, it actually drives me to go on and go back. And I think that's one of the things that for us in Arizona, the the example we have is this pipe organ over at um, Organ Stop Pizza, um, mm -hmm. which it sounds silly to keep saying that, but it's true. It is. I mean, but it's it's a you know million dollar, multi million dollar organ that's sitting there, yeah. and it's you know huge, and it's got the big glass you know windows that open and yep. close yep. to let air flow, and yeah, it's very impressive to watch and listen to, and they're very skilled musicians playing it. Mm -hmm. um, I cannot wait. I'm just hearing now the the different in scale and size of what you're talking about and even looking at the pictures um from the history mm -hmm. of of the Kochmer organ I'm like I'm just I'm thrilled to get out to Portland and see this yeah. thing I really like this is on my this is on my bucket list now because it's one of those things that I think it's just an impressive feat that it 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 is it is not as common now and it's it's one of those things that's just you're seeing it you know these things disappear from you know culture in general yeah. mm -hmm. um 
So no, that that man, that sounds really impressive. How many people yeah. play the Kotzbar back there? I mean, is it a limited select number of musicians that play that, or what's the? How's yeah, that we have we ha- we have guests. I mean, basically, just about every um, pipe organist around the world has played this instrument. It's you know people from France and Spain and Italy and all over the U.S., the U.K. Um, people want to play this instrument because it makes you know sounds that that you just can't get anywhere else. And, and you, you just can't, you know, you literally can't make this stuff up. It's like going back in time to the most extraordinary sound world. Um, and the pipe organ is unique. We can recreate that, that world. Um, so we have guests who come in from, um, you know, the, the sort of top of their fields really and come and give concerts. And I give about half of the concerts a year and we have guests do the others. We also work with other groups, sort of brass and percussion, jazz groups. Um, we're doing a concert with a really great uh, disco tribute band, disco tribute band called Motor Booty Affair, who are really big in the Northeast. Um, you know, they wear these big um, sort of Afro wigs and bell-bottom trousers. And, and I'm going to be doing a concert with them, you know, playing. Are, are you going to wear a wig and bell-bottoms? I, I've been told I have to, yeah. All right. <laughs> so, so, and these are not things, you know, I talk about like not your grandma's organist. Um, people think of the pipe organ as being old music written by old people, played by old people for old people. Um, and we think of the organ being synonymous with the church and with sort of very slow, lugubrious hymns. Um, and that's never the organ that I grew up with. So in a way I was, I never had that stereotype to deal with. So I always have to remind myself, this is what most people, when you say pipe organ, they're like, oh, that sounds boring. And, you, and so I have to keep saying, no, 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 this is really cool. This is not definitely not boring. Um, so when we have guests come in and play, I love it because I get to hear them do things that I wouldn't necessarily think of doing sound combinations and the, the pieces they play and the style they play. And I think, oh, that's really cool. I should try that. Um, so we get this great synergy. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's an awesome sound. Really, really fun. So let's, I, I want to talk about music in general then um yeah what what do you listen to on a regular basis like what's your what's your go-to that's a great question and i think my my list my soundtrack is going to be similar to yours i basically depend it depends on where i am and because i travel a fair amount i'm you know i have these great noise cancelling headphones that i can just put on on a plane or on a train or whatever and just sit back and listen to to whatever. So I have an incredibly eclectic taste. My parents are not musicians. They, um, you know, my mom took piano lessons when she was younger, but apart from that, they didn't force anything on me. I had no preconceptions. I had no sense of, oh, I should be, um, you know, I should be doing this or I should be performing that like a lot of my friends had. My dad actually grew up um, playing in a ragtime band with Mark Knopfler, the guitar uh, lead singer of Dire Straits. Um, and would drive him around. My dad was a, a DJ who would do disco stuff and would drive Mark around in his little Lotus 7, a little sports car, um, looking for apartments. And, and apparently Mark said to my dad one time, oh, you know, you want to be in a band? And my dad's like, no, I got a real job. You know, I'm going to have a family and do all this stuff. And then he went and became super famous and successful. Um, so I grew up with a lot of that music, lots of sort of, you know, stuff from the 60s, 70s, the Beatles, I guess, were the absolute apex of that. Um, that my parents would listen to um, lots of easy listening stuff like the Eagles and then Steely Dan and um, 
and I get a little bit of Led Zeppelin. So, so a very um, broad sort of, you know, rock pop background from my parents. And then I, I didn't really go for the whole pop thing when I was growing up. I just thought that, was, you know, that a lot of that music sounded really stupid um, and undervalued. And I had always listened Thank to, you. <laughs> you know, the, the Beatles and things instead, which makes me sound very old. But I remember my parents, you know, were very impressed by that. Um, um, and then I found jazz when I was at university. And jazz is, is, is a good link for organists because jazz musicians are one of the only other groups of instrumentalists that improvise, that make stuff up. And pipe organists are the other ones. So it's very rare now, you know, you find a violinist or a flutist or a pianist. Um, and so you say, make something up. And they're like, oh, no, I, I can't make anything up. You know, I have to just perform a written down piece. Um, and in contrast, the, you know, organists and jazz musicians were always making stuff up. Um, so when I first started hearing jazz, Charlie Parker and Oscar Peterson and co, I thought, oh, this is this is awesome. I need to learn to do this. I love the harmonies they used. And because you're making something up, you don't have any rules. And I think one of the dangers of right of playing music that's written down is, oh, I have these rules. I can't do that because it's just not done. Um, in jazz, you can be much more free. And, and so in my improvisation, I often think of that um, that freedom it's been really, really important. Um, and, and then lots and lots of, you know, classical stuff. I basically listen to anything and everything. And I listen to a lot of podcasts as well, including yours, which I think is fantastic. I think that listening to people talk and people speak is, is almost as important to me as listening to other people make music. Um, so I do do a lot of that as well. Well, yeah, I, I, um, I really enjoy variety. There are some stuff that I just, I don't get. Uh, there are some things I just don't get. I've never understood like screamo or any of right. like, the really <laughs> like, listen, if I can't understand what you're saying, I, I just, I probably won't listen. Um, right. You know, the heavy, heavy metals, not that I have anything against it. If you like that stuff, go for it. Right. But if you're listening to metal, that's so loud and, and harsh that you can't really understand they're like people just yelling and screaming yeah. like they're possessed. I just, it's not my thing. I just have a hard time with that. I like to understand. I love stories. Like I love, I think mm-hmm. one of the things I like about classical um, music and instrumentals is it has to tell a story without words, Absolutely. but it tells it through like almost a, a musical emotion, right? Like you feel the power of, and I think mm-hmm. that's why we still use it in movies, right? Cause we, we could make movies without music. We don't mm-hmm. need music, but it draws such a feeling, you know, the, yeah. the, the high speed chases with the fast movement yeah. and you have that picked up pace of, and you think about it, it's all instrumentals. Like there's no, yeah. very rarely do you see a movie where they're in a high speed chase. I don't even, I, I don't even know if I can name one where there's somebody right. singing in the background, maybe like, <laughs> you know, eastbound and down, you know, in uh-huh. uh, with, with Burt Reynolds. Like I could, okay. Yeah. yeah. But in most, it's not that. And, and the same with like darker movies, like, you know, Batman begins or mm-hmm. any of those DC movies where, you know, they're a little darker, like you just, you know, silence of the lambs. Like there's no lyrics in the background. It's not, right. you know, there's just music and it, and it builds a feeling within you. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's why a lot of times I'll go like my daughter who's 16, it drives her nuts. Cause I'll turn on like sixties or seventies country. And the thing is, is I love the storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, um, I'm trying to think of, uh, the, the artist off the top of my head, Marty something, but he, uh, he wrote a, a series of songs about El Paso. 
Right. And it was about this guy who falls in love with a, a girl who works at a, at a bar, you know, in old El Paso. And this is back in, yeah. you know, the days of horses and cowboys. And, you know, he's a jealous guy and he winds up getting into a fight with a guy who was like flirting with her and, you know, he kills mm. him. And he has to run, and then, but he loves this girl, so he comes back, and he gets chased, and he gets killed at her feet. And there's three different takes on this story. One yeah. is from his perspective, one is from the girl's perspective of her life, and one is from somebody telling the story later on. And they're yeah. all the same story, but told in three modes, and they just, they're amazing, because it's that, it's that again, it's that um, they use the words to, to bring the emotion and tell the story. And to me, that's impressive, and very very mm-hmm. few people nowadays do that. It's a lot of, um, you know, what I would need to sing pop would be auto-tune and, you know, mm-hmm. um, yep. just mass-produced lyrics that don't say anything at all. They just happen to say things but nothing at all. And, right. you know, they're not the James Browns, the Johnny Cashes, the Elvis Presleys, mm-hmm. the, you know, Smokey Robinson, Otis Redding, yep. another one, you know, Marvin Gaye. Yeah. They were storytellers. And, and if they weren't telling a story with their particular song – they weren't just singing words in repetition. Um, mm. You know, it was it was still some sort of a story. And that's, uh, to me, what makes the music that you play and that I've heard you play so impressive is it's, it connects to people no matter where you are. Like, you can be... Right. You can be the poorest person person in, in Asia. You could yeah. be the richest person in America, the poorest person in Guatemala, the richest person in, you know, UK, whatever... You yeah. can hear that music and go, oh, I can appreciate this, mm-hmm. you know, and you can feel the power of it. That's impressive. That's that's one yeah. of those things. So tell me this. Um, um, Think about artists who came from across the pond. Uh, Elton John, right? He's from he's from yep. the UK. All right. Up or yep. down? Where are we at with, with Elton John? Oh, I think he's fantastic. Yeah. Good storyteller. Oh, yeah. Awesome. And he actually studied classical to be a classical pianist at the Royal Academy of Music in London. Really? Um so he has, you know, along with the showmanship and mm-hmm. and obviously an extraordinary knack for, um, you know, writing great songs, lyrics and music. He's an incredibly accomplished pianist. So, yeah, that's that's always I think he's hilarious. Yeah. Saturday night's all right for fighting, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Victor Borga. You, you know who Victor Borga is? Yeah. Yep, yep. I th- I think awesome. Really, really talented. As you say, with, with music is an international language and there are very few rules so basically anything goes and i think you know one musician especially to another you it's so easy to appreciate what's you know what's good about stuff so yeah i think that's awesome i think victor borga was the first pianist i ever got um introduced to uh musically uh, yeah. my, my father being um an immigrant himself uh mm-hmm. he really enjoyed victor borga's humor and of course, right, you know, Victor right. Borga was, oh, was a comedy yeah, yeah. show. It was like, yeah. it wasn't, you you could go listen to him for the piano, but you're really getting a comedy show and he yeah, was good at absolutely. it too. So, absolutely. That's awesome. So yeah. <clears throat> um, what's coming up that people should know about coming up in Portland? You got some, you got some stuff coming up in February and March. Yep. Yep. If they're out on that coast and they're near the New England States, even if they're not, they should travel that way. What are they going to, what can they expect? What can they go see? Definitely. So on the 17th of February, we have a, uh, um, uh, an event by Creative Portland, so it's all of the, you know, kind of the top creative um, musical events in the city, and we're talking African drummers to rap artists to jazz groups to the pipe organs. So this is an amazing eclectic mix, 
and I'll be performing as sort of the, the headline for that on the, on the organ. And the fun thing is about that is people's perceptions. We're going to be playing with them a lot because people will walk into that space, not expecting to hear or see a pipe organ. They probably didn't even know what it was. It just looks like a very nice uh, decorative row of pipes on the stage. So that's always fun seeing people who are expecting one thing and then they're like, Oh my goodness, I wasn't, I didn't, I was not expecting that to come out. Um, that was a very then, good, Oh my goodness, without an accent too. That was <laughs> good. That was a very, oh my goodness. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Goodness. Um, so, um, then the next event I have is on the, the 20th of March, which is, um, uh, it's around J.S. Bach's birthday. So Bach is like the greatest organ composer. Um, I think his birthday is on the 23rd. I forget. should remember this. But he was, you know, it's like the, the big name for us organists. And everybody loves the music of Bach. I mean, it is truly an international language. And, and it's thrilling and comforting and rewarding and exciting all at once. So and he was really the main, you know, when he wrote music, pipe organ music of his is really the best, I think. Um, so I'm playing a whole concert of just his music on the um, the instruments. And then we have a number of other events, sort of smaller events throughout the, the season. We always have tours of the of the instrument. So, you know, we just go behind the stage, essentially, and, and check out the instrument. Then we have a big event um, in the summer and, and lots of stuff moving ahead to the fall. So... It's it's a big season coming up and lots of preparation for it. And where can they find out more about you and these shows? Do you have a website? Yeah, so the the um, the, the Kochmar organ is run by a group called the Friends of the Kochmar organ. Their website is foco f o k o dot o r g, um, and you can find details of the pipe organ and the history and about me and the municipal organists. Um, and then I'm all over Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Instagram and things. So. So it's just my website is my full name at me uh, at no, it's jameskennelly.com. Um, so that sort of links to everything. But, yeah, we try and put stuff up everywhere. So people just go to one place. They can they can see it. But wonderful. And yeah, if you go to our website, gone in 18 dot com, you'll yeah. find all the links for for James Kennelly's information. And we've even got your uh, Twitter links, Facebook, awesome. the whole, you know, your fan page and, and all that kind of stuff uh, will be up there. Um, wow. I, you know what? I, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to come on the show with us. Uh, I'm so grateful to, um, your PR team because, uh, they're great people and yeah. they, uh, they've done a great job in coordinating this and Really, it was a, a learning experience for me. I, I appreciate music. Like I said, I'm not a I'm not a musician. I wish I always wished I was, <laughs> um, but I just uh, I never could get the knack for it, and I think uh, I think I lack the discipline of it. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, I get a little too spacey. I think sometimes. Uh, listen, I don't even. I, my wife tracks my schedule because I can't remember where I'm supposed to be this afternoon. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, it's 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 very impressive to see uh, what you have accomplished in 34 years, and I'm excited to see what you accomplish in the next 34. Uh, you've set the bar high, so don't uh, drop it. That's true. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm I'm sure that your family is very proud of you. Uh, I, I hope to meet you when we come out to the East Coast. I know we'll be visiting both Portland awesome. and New York. My daughter's yeah. got New York on her list and I've made, Of course. <laughs> yeah, she's like she's all about, you know, wanting to go and um so we'll definitely make sure that we uh 
we set up our time to, you know, to, well, and I'll just try to coordinate with you too, as we're, yeah. as we're traveling that we'll be in that area for quite a while, but, yeah, awesome. um, would love to, I'm actually going to be looking at the calendar, keeping an eye on it to see, uh, when performances will be up there in Portland. Mm-hmm. Cause I'd love to, uh, attend one, uh, yeah, when, absolutely. you know, with my wife and kids and have them experience that too. Um, yeah. I don't know. This might actually push us to go out to the, uh, <laughs> to the Oregon stop pizza this weekend. <laughs> just Definitely. Yeah, you know, we just might do that because it's, it's it's worth doing. Darn it! Um, yeah, it's so unique. Very cool. So unique. Very cool, James. I am so glad that you joined us today. Um, we'll make sure that we put out all the links, and so folks, you guys can find those just by visiting our website www.goneen18. That's g o n e i n one eight dot com. Follow James uh, on all of his social medias, which you can find those links there and uh, be sure to leave a review. And um, if you've listened to, here's another thing I want to do is just, if you've listened to anything that he's, he's done and you can go, I mean, just search his name for crying out loud and you'll find it. But on his website, he does have a, uh, an audio video uh, media link and um, go listen to some of the stuff and, and, and just, um, if you enjoy it, uh, leave some uh, leave some comments in the uh, on our show notes or um, on the podcast page. If you don't enjoy it, keep your mouth shut. We don't want to hear it. Um, <laughs> and uh, otherwise, uh, we hope to catch you next time on the 18 Summers Live Your Passion podcast. Thank you for joining us for the 18 Summers Live Your Passion podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you have, we definitely encourage you to come back for another one. Share with your friends our podcast. Help them to live their passion. And most importantly, stay in contact with us. Reach out to us. Use our website, www.goneen18.com. That's G-O-N-E-I-N-1-8.com. There's a contact form on there. You can send us questions that you might have or comments about the show. And you know what? You can also find all of our social media links there. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. They're all there for you to find. We hope you enjoy it. Check out the blog too while you're there. Why not? Hey, we'll see you next time.